Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. You're listening to the Fish Untamed Podcast, your home for fly fishing the backcountry. This is episode 119 with George Cater on the Great Lakes Salmon Run. Well, last time we got a background on you at the start of the episode, like we usually do. But um, considering you've been here before and not too long ago, um, people can go back. I'll I'll put the episode number in the show notes. I don't quite remember what episode you were on, but um, we can skip all the formalities there and jump right into the content today, which is salmon fishing. So I'm excited to talk to you about that. Yeah, thanks, Katie. I appreciate you having me back again. We talked about having this conversation again uh, a year ago, and um, I, I was home and I remembered uh, us talking about that, and, and that's why I reached out again because I was looking forward to talking with you. Yeah, so um, last time we did like a, a deep dive on pike, and I think we may have touched on maybe a smallmouth bass a little bit, but I remember it was pretty heavily pike focused. Um, and this time we're talking about Great Lakes salmon. I, I think I've been on a bit of a Great Lakes kick recently. I've done a couple on steelhead, and then some that were um, not steelhead, but like adjacent. I, d- I did a walleye one that's going to come out soon on Great on uh, Lake Erie. So uh, I don't know what's going on right now, but I bit, happened to be on a bit of a Great Lakes kick. So one of the things you mentioned. <laughs> that's great because before- it's a it's a I was going to say it's a it's a it's a super uh, amazing uh, fishery um, and how it came to be and. Um, you know, I'm always excited to talk about this uh, subject. Yeah. So as far as uh, how it came to be, I saw that you had mentioned that um, the history is, is really interesting. So maybe let's start there and, and tell me the history of the Great Lakes salmon species. Well, it, um, it is an interesting history. And one of the things that, that I love about fly fishing is, is studying the history of the sport. And, and I was a former history teacher. I taught history for 10 years. And so uh, doing deep dives into the sport of fly fishing has has always been really uh, fun for me. And so, uh, you know, originally Lake Ontario had an amazing run of Atlantic salmon, you know, dating back to the mid 1800s, and um, that was actually fished out to extinction. And so, um, there was a, a history of, of Atlantic salmon, at least. It, in Lake Ontario. I don't think they made it any further than Lake Ontario, but I'm not sure on that one. Um, but then, so there was no fishery and the main fish in the Great Lakes was, was a whitefish. Um, in the later 1800s, uh, brown trout were introduced uh, in the Pierre Marquette River in uh, Michigan and steelhead were brought over um, from the Pacific Northwest. 
And both of those were kind of experimentations at the time, too, to see if they would thrive and live in the cold waters of the Great Lakes. And they did. And uh, what they noticed uh, early on was that um, these brown trout that were originally stocked in uh, the Piramarquette River in Michigan started making their way uh, up the rivers to spawn. And um, and then they'd go back out into the lakes and some would stay in the rivers and some would become migratory brown trout. Um, and so it was really interesting. And, and they started uh, uh, moving those brown trout to the other Great Lakes too. And they've really thrived in Lake Michigan. And the steelhead, uh, same thing. They were brought over as a, to be a sport fish and um, they did very well in the cold, clean waters. And, and they started migrating up the rivers as well. And and growing to really huge sizes. Uh, both of those species did actually. So, you know, we have brown trout uh, that are uh, over 40 inches. My personal best is a 38 inch brown trout um, in one of the tributaries here in Wisconsin. Uh, I have a buddy who caught a 42 inch one. Uh, the steel had get gigantic as well. It's, uh, it's really interesting. Uh, but there was a problem um, in the 1900s, mid 1900s, and really with the Industrial Revolution and um, uh, around the Great Lakes and all the shipping and industry that was coming in from the Atlantic Ocean was bringing uh, an invasive species, and it's a fish known as an alewife. And uh, that fish was eating the fry and the eggs of the whitefish, which was the big sport fish of the Great Lakes, you know. And that's that was the fishery was the was the uh, whitefish. And so biologists started seeing the numbers of the whitefish just declining like crazy. And they're going, what's going on here? You know, and what's happening to this amazing fishery? And they realized what was, what was happening. These alewives were, were eating the fry and the eggs. And so um, they needed to find a species that would eat the alewives. And it was 1965 where the biologists said, you know, um, the brown trout aren't doing it. The steelhead aren't doing it. Maybe we can we can put a salmon in, in here and, and see if a, a Chinook or a coho would, would do it. And so um, about a year later in 1966 to 1970, well, those four-year period, millions of uh Chinook and coho salmon were stocked in, in Lake Michigan. I'm not as familiar with the other Great Lakes as, as much as I am Lake Michigan because it's my local fishery and it's where I guide, it's where I fish. You know the tributaries here on the Wisconsin side. I know the Michigan side pretty well uh, also because I do go over there and fish. Um, but it was like this amazing story because here these alewives were you know, this invasive species that were taking over Lake Michigan and just that very first generation of, of king salmon and coho uh, started eating the alewives and um, became the food source for the Great Lake salmon, and it worked. And so um, that, was, uh, that was the introduction of salmon uh, into the Great Lakes. And since then, uh, king, uh, coho, these huge brown trout, huge steelhead, have become the main uh, migratory species of Lake Michigan and, and other Great Lakes as well. It sounds like this was one of the rare instances where a, a, a species was introduced to wipe out another one and didn't have catastrophic consequences, unless there's something you left out there. Um, but I didn't get the impression that the salmon like demolished 
the all the other fisheries out there. W- were there any unintended consequences like that of putting such a like an apex predator into this ecosystem? No, there there were there were none, and and that's what one of the fascinating things about the story is they weren't quite sure what was going to happen, and they weren't sure if um, the salmon were going to to spawn to to um, begin a migratory path, if they were going to imprint on these um, these rivers that they were uh, where the fry were were planted. Um, you know, just it was just a big guessing game. And when you read about it, and there's some really good articles out there from the time period, and also looking back and reflecting on it, there's some good YouTube videos also um, about this topic. And it turned out to be just a, a kind of a, an amazing match, you know, where where all of these migratory fish that were introduced in the Great Lakes um, thrived, and uh, now they all are a great sport fishery, but also uh, require uh, our states and uh, bordering states to maintain uh, clean water and make sure that um, a lot of the the runoff coming from the different areas into these tributaries are are clean enough to uh, not to you know pollute the the waters to, to keep these fish safe. So it's really been a, a wonderful blessing. Do you happen to know how long after the introduction um, that it, there, there was a sport fishery? Was it immediate or were they trying to um, make a big enough dent on the alewives before they opened up salmon fishing to the public thinking, you know, like we don't want everyone coming in here and walking away with salmon and then, then we're left without the species that we put in here intentionally. Do you happen to know how long it was before they opened it up? It was pretty quickly um, within the first few years because I remember reading that the first salmon that were being caught through the sport fishery were only about in that five to 10 pound range. And so they, they had a good idea that they would make it and survive and it would become a great sport fishery as well because of the brown trout and the steelhead, you know, that, that they've already been around for about a hundred years up until that point. And so there was, uh, there was, there was really a, a strong chance the salmon would survive and do well. The only question they had, they weren't sure of, is would they eat the alewives? That was the big question, and uh, and they did. It was, and it's, uh, and it, and uh, it was the uh, the absolute sev- savior of the Great Lakes whitefish. And at this point, are they self reproducing? Like, is the population or self is the population self sustaining, um, or do they continue to stock for anything more than just adding a few more fish for people to catch? So. It's it's it is it's a really interesting uh, deal. I don't really know what's going on in in Lake Superior or the other Great Lakes, but I can speak for Lake Michigan in that on the Wisconsin side we do not get any natural reproduction, and so um, our side of Lake Michigan is runoff and rainwater dependent, and so the fish will um, they'll imprint on the rivers because when and they'll come back into the rivers where they were spawned by the DNR, um, and they'll go through the motions of reproduction. You'll see, you'll see females building reds and males lined up behind her fighting for position. You'll see all that they're going. They're going to go through the entire reproductive process, but the eggs just don't take. They can't make it. Our water's too warm, too much runoff. On the Michigan side, however, they do. 
And so there's uh, many rivers on the Michigan side that uh, where natural reproduction is successful and um, thriving and does well for, for all four species of migratory fish. But on our side, uh, none of them do. Uh, you'll see the browns going through their, their uh, reproduction, the, the steelhead will in the, in the spring as well, and, and um, the eggs just don't take. There is the population as a whole is completely dependent on, on a DNR spawning. And so, and uh, we have facilities, uh, several, I want to say we have three or four on the Wisconsin side and the Michigan side does as well, where, where eggs are, are captured and, and the fertilization is done at a spawning facility. Uh, without that, there would be a, there would be spawning, but not enough to sustain a large uh, sport fishing, you know, population. You may have inadvertently answered my next question, which was which species are present there. And you said four species of migratory fish. And I'm assuming that's the browns, the steelhead, the cohos, and the kings. Um, are there any other species that are there? Or is it just those two salmon species that were put in? We also have some pink salmon too. And so um, I know there's pink salmon in the Milwaukee River because I've, I've caught them. And um, that's a that's a smaller size salmon. Uh, I don't know much about the history of when that was introduced. Um, I haven't seen the pink salmon in any of the other any of the other tributaries. They might be in there, but I just haven't seen or caught them. Uh, but when you really talk about the migratory fish um, in Lake Michigan, in, in particular. You're talking about four main species. You're talking, and it's really interesting because you, you really can't talk about one without talking about the others. And even though our focus today is 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 the salmon um, run, the whole the whole process of, of the migratory fish is kind of needs to be addressed in one. So we have, and I'll I'll, I'll walk you through this right now because it answers your question. Okay. Um, the season begins really around September first. And usually in the typical year, the, the kings, which are Chinooks, will start running first. And for the month of September, we're going to get a really, really amazing uh, run of king salmon. And they're going to make their way up our tributaries, but it's, it's, it's rain dependent on the Wisconsin side. So, for example, uh, we were in a really severe drought this September. And we had about, um, even in late September, first week of, of October, we had five days where it reached mid, into the mid-80s. And so the, the run was late this year. And not only when it, was it late, but the numbers were down and, and a lot of fish either died in, in the harbors or, or in the lower sections of the rivers, you know, before uh, they can make their climb. And... Uh, but typically, that king salmon run is going to be from September 1st through October 1st. And that's where you're going to find, you know, thousands of, of fish in, in our tributaries. And it's, it's really, really amazing. And um, it's a beautiful thing to get out there, especially when you start getting on some of these fresh, these fresh king salmon that can, that can reach over 30 pounds. You know, they, they're huge. Around October 1st, in a typical year through November 1st, is when the coho now start coming in. And there's usually a little bit of an overlap as well between where you'll still get some fresh kings uh, when the coho start coming in. 
And uh, that that month is really exciting because because now we're going to also start seeing uh, some steelhead coming in and some of the browns will start moving in. When the steelhead come into the tributaries in the fall, they're they're not spawning. They're they they're, they spawn in the spring, but they're just eating. They're eating salmon eggs, so they're just kind of gording on the on the salmon. And uh, you know, a couple of years ago, my son caught a monster thirty six inch uh, steelhead that was sitting right behind a female. We we he was throwing his uh, he was throwing his egg nymphing rig and and. Uh, that steelhead took and gave him a, about a 20 minute battle. It was, it was awesome. And so, and, but, but that steelhead was just there to, to, to eat eggs. When the brown trout start coming in, some of them will come in for the same purposes to, is to eat eggs too around that time. But, but after the coho around November 1st through the month of December is where we get the big push of brown trout. And the brown trout are spawning in the fall. So they come in around November and they're spawning and um, they're really heavy right now. We got a really good rain about a week ago and uh, the brown trout are just everywhere. And uh, I've got buddies that are that are out just catching just monster fish. So a really good migration of brown trout this year. So that's kind of the fall run, and that's why I say you can't really talk about one without talking about the other because they're so interdependent, you know. And so the and then when the and obviously I think most of us know that when when salmon spawn, uh, they die, you know. And so the the river is filled with these you know dead and dying salmon, and uh, uh, but the steelhead they don't. So uh, and the browns, they don't die. So they're going to head back out into, into uh, Lake Michigan and, and grow some more and be ready for next year's run again. So throughout the winter, once the salmon run is over, we still are left with this amazing fishery of brown trout and steelhead that'll stay in the tributaries throughout the winter. Um, and then some will stay in uh, for the spawn. And then there'll be a whole nother push of steelhead um, around March 1st uh, for the official steelhead run in the Great Lakes. And, and uh, that's just a whole nother exciting season then that lasts for about two months. And, um, you know, and then we just wait till the following September, you know, and in between we have the uh, incredible uh, smallmouth bass, muskie, pike and all that stuff going on. But uh, when the salmon season starts, it's an exciting time of year because um, not only are we uh, are we fishing still for the warm water species, but but now we've got this whole another uh, option of fishing. And and I know my clients just love salmon fishing because it's sight fishing. It's super fun and um, uh, relatively easy. You don't have to make these bomber casts. You just need to be able to mend it decently. And so, um, but anyway, that's that's kind of the that's kind of the story of the, the, the migration of the four species and, you know, how they kind of live and, and work, work this, uh, work this thing out together. Cause there's times where there's, they're all in there together. It's really cool. I usually end up asking this question on any episode where we're talking about a migratory species, but is, uh, is the season that you can fish for them dictated by laws or is it dictated by when they come in? Like, could you legally go fish for one of these salmon in the middle of July? I'm not saying you would catch one. I'm saying that, you know, you could stand out there and, and 
go through the motions. Would you legally be allowed to do that, but you just wouldn't catch one because they're not in there? Or is is there a season that says like you you are allowed to start fishing for them on this date? No, there's 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 no there's no uh, preset date. Uh, they're just not there. You know, like for okay. example, what I do every year is is obviously I can't take out clients until I know the fish have moved. You know. And so I have friends that live in the Milwaukee area that will tell me and they'll scout out the rivers for me because I'm about um, I'm about 40 minutes away from my nearest tributary. So it's not a big drive, but, you know, a phone call is a lot easier, obviously. But like this year, I made six different trips out um, scouting, um, you know, four or five different rivers and trying to say, hey, where are these fish? Are they running? Are they pushing? Um, are they starting to build reds? You know, and, and, and I'm out there in waders. I don't even bring a rod with me. I'm just just walking, hiking the river, you know. So I want to make sure that they're in. Um, and then when they're in, you know it because they, they come in by the thousands. I mean, it's just absolutely amazing. It's it's really similar to when you see these pictures out in the Pacific Northwest of these just thousands of salmon everywhere. That's what we get here. It's really cool. Are there kind of a like a main set of tributaries that they come up, like kind of the main stems of tributaries of the lake, or do they then branch off those tributaries into you know tributaries of the tributary? Like, I, I guess I guess what I'm trying to get at is, are there like a handful of locations that people know about, and that's where you go to fish for salmon, or is it kind of like you know the the possibilities are endless, and you can kind of sneak back into um, these little feeder tributaries that that will have salmon. Yeah, I know it's it, it is it's amazing. That's a great question because I was fishing uh, last year with uh, a buddy of mine who comes up from uh, Tennessee, and he's actually up right now. I wish I could fish with him, but uh, I'm recovering from his back surgery. But um, there are tributaries of tributaries that are only a few feet across, and you'll be like, "Oh my gosh, there's a." 30 pound king salmon sitting right there <laughs> so i i think they just kind of get lost sometimes I, <laughs> okay I, I don't know because i know that i know the dnr didn't uh didn't plant uh you know any right. uh yearlings in there it's not like they imprinted on these little tiny uh feeder streams you know but so i do think they kind of get lost sometimes when you watch them migrate it's really fun to watch sometimes i just go and, and i just like hiking around and and just seeing what they do because they really will will follow a pattern. And so when they're making their run, they're pushing, you'll see a group of fish just kind of follow the same pattern where they'll push to a bank, they'll scoot up that bank, they'll find a deeper section of water, push through, they'll hang out. If they've got to climb a run, they'll kind of hang out below the run first. Then when they make their climb to the top of the run, they'll sit and they'll wait at the top of the run. Sometimes they'll just stay there. I, I find a lot of spawning fish at the top of runs. But I think when they're doing that, sometimes they, they find this water and these uh, little tribs of tribs. And, and sometimes they're only a few feet across. You can jump over them and you'll find you'll find all four species in these places. Um, you know, there's uh, it's it's pretty cool. Now, I don't think many many uh, people go out and try to explore fish in them, but uh, I, I know I have, and, and and they're in there. It's really neat. How how would you recommend like if somebody wanted to kind of like do a a, a blue lining trip for for salmon, like get away from kind of some of the more crowded areas and check these places out? Is it is it a matter of just kind of walking around and seeing which ones have the salmon or is it kind of reliable that you know you go to these feeder streams and they'll probably each have you know a handful of lost fish in them? You know, it, it kind of depends on the 
on the on the river because okay. on the Wisconsin side, we don't really have a river that lends itself for float trips. So like right now, from the Sheboygan River down to the Illinois border, basically Kenosha, there are, I think I fish like, yeah, six different rivers, six different tributaries of Lake Michigan. They're just tributaries. Two of those tributaries, like for example, the Menominee River that runs uh, on a, through Wauwatosa, which is a Milwaukee suburb, and then into, into um, Milwaukee, there's a few tributaries of that. And and they're really small, and, and they'll get a really nice salmon run, a really nice steel run. And they'll make their way all the way up into uh, Honey Creek, which is a tiny little creek off of uh, the Menominee River. So you can find those kind of spots if you want to that are like these more like little trout streams with giant salmon sitting in them. Um, but there's no secrets. Um, the one thing about like when it comes to the migratory fish is is that there's only so many tributaries, right? So anybody that wants to fish them knows where to fish them. Now, do they know how to catch them? That's a different story. You know, um, do they know um, how to approach the fish technique wise and, and, and how to go about uh, making the cast and, and, and using the right flies and eggs and all those things that, you know, that's, that's a whole different deal, but there, there's just not really any secrets. And so what I do is, is, I'll go to the Milwaukee River and the Menominee River first because they have the most um, the, the reliable water. So like the Milwaukee River, even though it was very low this fall, um, typically will, will hold still over 250 CFS and, and that's enough to, to get a push of salmon. So, um, and same thing with the Menominee. Where we fish on the Menominee River is not far from the harbor. And so those fish can find some pretty deep water right up until when they, they start making their push up some of the runs. Um, some of the some of these smaller rivers that don't have as much dependable water uh, really rely on rain. And, and if they don't get rain, I won't even bother going, you know, and checking it out because um, they're they're not going to be there, or they're going to be um, sitting in two inches of water on their side and you know, just dying. So, um, you know, it's more, it's more about knowing the watersheds, knowing how much water's in the river. I'm checking gauges all the time. This, the, the USGS, um, the CFS and, um, and, and you just gotta know it, you know, I've, I've been fishing them for so many years that, that I'm pretty good at knowing, you know, okay, they should be in, let's, let's go give this a shot, you know. Do they behave any differently in those smaller tributaries to the, to the larger river? Uh, like in terms of feeding, I mean, like the techniques you would use to catch them, are they any different? A little bit, only because of space. So for, for salmon, they don't, they don't run up the rivers until they've reached um, reproductive maturity. And that occurs at year four. So when they're four years old, that's when they're going to start making their, their runs. And, you know, it depends on the size of the river. You know, so like, for example, the Milwaukee River is one of my favorites because there's uh, so many really cool sections to fish. And I'm actually going to be developing a float trip for the Milwaukee River. So I'm super excited about that because um, I think I've got some put-ins and takeouts that I can use. Um, but you're not, you're not casting for salmon from a boat. You know, you have to be out there. You have to be waiting. 
and um, but it's wide enough to where you can use you can throw an indicator with uh, um, an egg pattern or you can uh, swing flies or you can strip flies and uh, I love the spay cast and and uh, it's one of my favorite ways of catching salmon in all four migratory species and so um, that's the river that I can take my two-handed rod out there and and really get after it you know um, the Menominee River I can still use my two-handed rod in, in a couple of the sections but um, basically every other river uh, requires um, I can't I can't uh, two-handed spay I've got to use my one hand one hand spay rod and single hand and that's fun too and I enjoy doing that but they're just uh, they're not wide enough you know and so there's no reason to be trying to cast you know 80 to 100 feet on you know just these dynamic uh, uh, spay casts and because uh, you're not you're only talking about a, a river that's you know 50 60 feet across at the most where the what where the Milwaukee River and the Sheboygan River too will allow you to to spay cast and that's a super fun way of approaching them. Um, so that's the other thing I think it's really cool too about these migratory fish is that um, all four species you, you approach them the exact same way, and so you, you've got basically you've got basically three different ways you can fish them with a fly rod at least. Uh, one would be like an indicator rig and with an egg pattern and um, two is you can uh, swing flies uh, with a sink tip uh, with a traditional, you know, uh, setup. And so I, I do that a lot with my clients as well. Um, if I, if, if I, they're just not ready or they're not interested in learning how to spay cast out or, or single hand spay, I'll just use a, 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 one of my sink tips and we'll tie a fly in and we'll swing it that way. And, and the third way, obviously, is is uh, swinging flies through a, a with a spay rod, you know. So uh, those are the three ways that I fish for them, and uh, it's it's all are fun and super effective, and you know. And so I think when you see most fly fishermen out there, they're they're doing the same thing. Is the choice of technique based on anything other than? just what sounds fun to you to do? Like, is there a benefit to using one versus the other? And I don't mean, you know, obviously if, if you're trying to cast farther then a spay rod might help with that, but is there like a, Oh, at this time of year, the salmon are doing or eating this. Um, and therefore we're going to choose this technique to, to complement that. Or is it just like, what do you like doing? Yeah, I think a lot of it's preference. Um, but also there's a couple of things to keep in mind about uh, the migratory fish is, is that when the salmon, come into the tributaries, they're actually not eating at all. And so um, that is strictly a reactionary bite. Uh, you're basically just aggravating them. Um, they are there to spawn, reproduce, and die. That's what they do. You know, it's a, um, it is an absolutely a, a beautiful life cycle when you, and, and you watch them go through it and you see these fish making their push up the river and all that, but it's a strictly a reactionary bite. Now with the steelhead and the brown trout, they're 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 going to eat. I mean, it's it's a a lot of the bites are reactionary, but I've seen some big brown trout and steelhead chase down a fly. So you know, I know they're they're still they're they're trying to eat. But that salmon, the coho will chase down a fly to a, more than a king. A king's not going to move much for a swinging fly, for example, or even an egg pattern. So if I'm throwing a, a an egg pattern at a, at a king. You, you got to put that that egg within a few inches of the fish's mouth. They're just not going to move like that. 
Um, a lot of folks really enjoy uh, fishing for coho because uh, coho will chase and take a fly. So that's super fun, you know. Um, but yeah, the, the, the approach to, to catching these, I think it depends on the water you're fishing too. So if I'm fishing like a, a shallow run that has a couple of nice cuts in the bottom where I know there's fish sitting, um, and maybe I can't really get a swing a fly in there too well, but I can really drift a nice, get a nice egg to drift through with an indicator. I'll use that approach. You know, if I see, um, a female is building a red and there's males behind her. Um, it can be a lot easier to fish those males, um, you know, with it, with an egg pattern rather than trying to swing a fly through there. Cause she's, she might be the one to take it, you know? So, um, and I, and I try not to catch the female and that, like I said, they're not, they're not, you're not interrupting a spawn cause the eggs aren't going to take. So catching fish, um, in the, in the, uh, Wisconsin side on the tributaries is you're not, you're not like fishing unethically or any way by fishing a, a, a spawning female that's building a red because in more than likely that, that fish might've already been spawned out by the, by the DNR and the, and the uh, fish hatchery too. Um, but like I said earlier, she's, they're going through the process and it's still really fun to, to watch them go through the process. Um, so I think it depends on the water, you know, if I've got a stretch of, of nice uh, kind of wide slow water with a depth of about maybe waist deep uh, no not a run just kind of a, a bucket um, that's where i love to swing flies you know so like if i'm taking uh, either myself or with clients i usually make sure i've got a couple rods uh, rigged for each application and because uh, you know you don't you don't want to be making trips back up to the back up to the cars and gotta have it all with you so there's kind of a purpose for each each uh, each style, but I'd say there's there's a lot of purists out there that that really only want to spay fish. Um, I I kind of get that way in in the winter months in November, December, January. I, that that's my time to spay fish, and because I just know that the steelhead and the and the browns are gonna really charge after that after that fly. When it comes to the when it comes to the kings, I would say I go kind of go back and forth, but most of the, I would say about seventy five percent of the time I'm fishing king salmon with a with an egg and an indicator rig, uh, and then coho I'm probably closer to fifty fifty, and even with clients because once those coho when the fresh coho come in, they are really aggressive, uh, and it is super cool to watch and, and see it happen, and you know so much of this is sight fishing that because our water is 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 really clear. And, uh, and the, the excitement of, of just seeing these fish take that fly or seeing that, that indicator go down and, and, and hooking up to a 30 pound king. And it, it's just, it's just super cool. And I, I can't say enough about how exciting it is. And, and there's in typical years, you know, if I go out fishing for eight hours by myself or with clients, like we can expect 20 over 20 hookups, you know, 20, 25 hookups. Now the the landing of fish is a whole different story because you know they're gonna they're huge so they're gonna break you off you know and so um, if you if you're between twenty five percent and the fifty percent landing the fish ratio you're you're doing pretty good because of how big these fish are and so much of our water is so super clear that we've got to go with a really small tippet and uh, so you know ten pound tippet for a 40, 30, 40 pound fish is 
is pretty light, you know. So uh, we do lose our, our share of fish, which is which is fine. But um, you got to get that uh, got to get that eggs and kind of dance naturally. Otherwise, that fish is not going to take. So I'd say it's all dependent on the the what style of uh, what type of water you're actually fishing and and uh, and the species too, because the kings the kings really won't chase a, a fly down the way the other three species will. So if I'm just king fishing like September, um, I'm pretty much going to be throwing egg patterns. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Do you happen to know what the theory is about why these fish will take something like an egg pattern as a reactionary strike? Because I'm, I'm trying to think about other situations where there are reactionary strikes. And you know, I'm picturing you know uh, people who fish like um, when bass or panfish are spawning. And it, they're known for flying off their beds to attack, you know, I guess what they perceive as a threat to their nests. And I'm not necessarily advocating mm-hmm. for the, you know, the ethics of that, but just, you know, fish can get aggressive toward things that they view as a threat. But um, even if you are using like a, a big old streamer, I can't imagine these, you know, 30, 40 pound fish would view that as a threat, let alone an egg pattern. So it's got to be something other than feeling threatened. So do, do you know why there's a, still a reactionary strike there when they're not hungry and they're presumably not threatened either? Yeah, I, I just, it's not a threat. It's just kind of, you know, they just take it. It's just there. I, I don't know if it's an agitation thing. I mean, I watch them do it, you know, but you definitely with the Kings, you got to put that, you got to put that egg and that's within a few inches of the fish's mouth. They're not going to move like a steelhead. If you watch a steelhead take an egg pattern, that steelhead will move a foot either side to go get that egg because that steelhead wants that egg. But you know, but the kings, they won't, they won't. It's got to be within, I would say, maybe like three inches or four inches to the left or to the right of their mouth. And, and they'll make a subtle move to take it, you know. Uh, but a lot of times it takes a ton of cast because they're not, they're not going to take it. Um, I don't know. I just, it's, it's hard to understand nature sometimes, you know, because I just think it's an aggravation thing. You know, it's like, this is my, 
this is my home. I'm building a building a nest, building a red, and um, anything that does not look like it belongs, I'm I'm going to eat it. That's kind of the way I take it, at least. You know, I see the funny thing too is I see I see bass doing the same thing. So, you know, in uh, late April, early May, when the bass are are building their reds, and I see the see them on it, and you know, anything near it, they'll, they'll come off of it. Like just for fun, I, I don't fish bass when they're on the reds, but I'll throw a, I'll just throw, I'll, I'll show a client, I'll throw one kind of near it. I'll just make a, a cast kind of near it. And as soon as that fly hits the water, boom, that, that fish will come right off that red. So, you know, I just think they're triggered to, to do that, you know. Um, but watching these salmon and these migratory fish behave uh, in their spawning pattern is, that's half the fun of it too, you know. Because when you, you know, I, I know in, Typically, a lot of people call them beds or they're building a bed, but, you know, most, most of us fly fishermen uh, will refer to it as reds and, uh, because that's a Scottish word. And it's, a, it's interesting because it's a, this is part of my history of, love of the history of fly fishing, but uh, to the Scots, uh, redding is, is a verb and a, and a noun. So uh, they would say, uh, and it was from the Atlantic salmon run, that, that fish is redding. Uh, it means to tidy up in Scottish. And, and then once that fish is tidied up, now they have a red. So now it's a noun as well. So it's uh, so I've always just kind of taken, I call them reds for that reason, because I love that the history behind that phrase and how, how it developed. But, um, you know, watching them go through that process and, and catching them on the red when they're, when they're, uh, when the females there and the males are lined up behind her, that's, that's just, it's super cool. You know, and I think most of us try to target the males because they're just fighting for position anyway. Do you happen to know on the Michigan side, is it still considered bad form to um, catch a fish on a red because those eggs might actually be viable? See, I don't, I, I think it kind of is. You know, here's the thing. Salmon fishing has, um, it, it's got a love-hate spot with anglers and, and it's because of that. So when we're out here on these tributaries, and I know it goes on in Michigan, I know it goes on in the Pacific Northwest too, is that you'll get you'll get gear guys, you'll get fly guys that are out there snagging these fish, you know, and and they'll they're gonna try to um, floss them, uh, they're gonna try to just uh, you know snag them somewhere near the mouth or in the head or something like that and bite them and um, get them on their stringer and whatever, and so because of that. It, it, it gets a, it gets a little bit of a bad rap, you know, sometimes. And, and I think if it's done properly and you're fishing them properly, um, you don't have to approach it that way. So for example, um, I would say, I would say probably 75 to 80% of the fly fishermen that I see out there, um, are just chucking ducking, you know, they're, they've got a split shot and an egg and they're just throwing it out there and, I think a lot of them are are just uh, you know kind of don't care if they're gonna floss that fish or if they're gonna uh, snag it or whatever. But I strictly use an indicator. I'm strictly getting a, a proper mend and getting that fly where it needs to be, avoiding any kind of situation that might floss a fish or or, or snag snag a fish. You know, it's really easy. I mean, if you can see a fish, you can you can you can tell if you're gonna snag it by the drift you're getting, right? So it's not like you know, it's not like it's uh, 
unavoidable. You 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 can avoid it, and if it's done properly. So, but I think the key is using an indicator because if you're using an indicator, you're getting a good, true dead drift by that egg pattern, and and I think that uh, solves a lot of that that those concerns. As far as fishing on on the reds themselves, I, that's the thing. It doesn't really matter on the Wisconsin side, but on the Michigan side, I, I think there is concern about that, and I think there are a lot of people that are viably against it. So you've mentioned uh, eggs a lot and then, you know, swinging what I assume are decent sized streamers. But tell me kind of what the fly selection is like. Um, and you can pair it with the different techniques that they go with. I mean, obviously, you're not going to be, um, you know, rapidly stripping an egg pattern. But tell me what the flies are and, and how you use them properly. Yeah, for sure. So let's talk about the egg setup first, because it it um, it's going to be used for all four species almost identically. So... Okay, so here's the deal. You're going to want your typical nine foot um, for salmon. Well, let me, let me let me bring this back a little bit. For, for kings, I use a ten weight. For coho, uh, I'm usually using an eight weight, but sometimes we'll still keep the tens out. We get some huge coho too, and they will run and jump, and it's crazy. So, um, but for the kings, I'm I'm using a nine foot ten weight. Uh, for the browns and for the steelhead, I'm pretty much always on my eight weight. And like I said, coho I'll go back and forth. Uh, floating line, and I usually build a pretty long leader, so um, around nine and a half to ten foot leader. And my typical leader construction is uh, for the kings is going to be uh, 25, 20, 15, you know, in, in kind of that about uh, three foot sections, you know. Um, and then what I do is is I run, and that'll be straight fluorocarbon, and I'll run that to a swivel. It's a number seven swivel and it acts as like as a tippet ring, but it also gives you weight too. So um, now you're not, you're only dealing with one split shot instead of two or three. So that swivel has a, has a couple of really good purposes. And, and when I usually get, get other fishermen hooked into this setup, they love it. They never go back. They're like, Oh my gosh, this swivel is amazing because you got that. It serves as a tippet ring. But then it also allows that 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 tippet section down to your egg to move way more independent of itself too, and it acts as a weight, so it serves three purposes. But well, it serves a fourth purpose, I guess, because now when you put your split shot right above that swivel, it acts as a stop for that split shot too. So that's nice. Um, and so the split shot size really depends on the depth that you have to get that down to. But I usually only use one split shot because I have the swivel. Because everybody knows that when you are nymphing, split split shots just stink. You know, it's it's uh, it's a uh, it's a pain in the butt. So from that swivel, then uh, you're going to want to run about 18 to 24 inches of tippet section. And um, sometimes, if it's super low and clear, I'll go down to um, an eight pound. Uh, but that's awfully light. Um, I usually fluctuate between a 10 pound tippet and uh, tw- 12 pound uh, somewhere in there, but 10 seems to be perfect. I really think 10 gives you the, a nice uh, drift uh, with an egg or a nymph pattern of some kind, and um, and, and it's going to work out just fine for you. You're still going to land quite a few fish. You'll lose some, but but you're still going to land enough. Uh, so that's kind of the rig. That, that That's my setup. I think, you know, people talk about using um, nymphs and stonefly nymphs and you know, those types of things. And, but I, I don't, I mean, I only use an egg pattern. And so 
to me, it's just, it's what's effective. It's what catches fish. Um, I don't really see the need to be throwing all kinds of nymphs because they're, what they see more than anything in the river are eggs floating down the river. You know, we don't really get these nymphs if they're going to get a reactionary bite off of a, off of a, um, off of an egg, I'm going to take it. Now, when it comes to steelhead and browns, yeah, now, now you can start throwing, um, you know, different kinds of nymphs if you want to, because uh, they're going to be much more apt to take something like that than, than the salmon will. So I strictly stick with, with egg patterns. Um, color seems to matter. So over the years, and size of the egg too. Um, so over the years, what I've come to notice is that um, the number one color for me has been a chartreuse with like a red uh, blood dot um, that I just, I, I build into the egg. And, and that seems to be the most productive. You know, once in a while, I'll go to a peach with a red blood dot, and that seems to be very effective too. Um, but that's about it, you know, and no, nothing else seems to really do as well. Like bright orange, bright red. Um, you know, I know the spawn sack guys on, on, on gear, they, they, they're using red and orange all the time. They're catching, they're catching them. But um, for a fly fisherman with a single egg, that it just seems to be chartreuse seems to be the magic color, or at least on the rivers that I fish. So, um, so that's, that's my setup for, for the uh, floating line, throwing indicator uh, with, a, with an egg pattern. Um, some, some people will go out and they'll fish a, a double rig. You know, I just, I never do. I mean, even when I'm trout fishing, I, I'll, I'll strictly fish. Um, if I'm, if I'm nymphing, it'll be a, just one nymph. If I'm dry flying and just going to throw a dry. So I don't even do any kind of like dry dropper thing. Um, only because even, even really good casters are going to get tangled up. So when you start thinking about the time that you have to untangle, uh, you know, a, a double rig, it just doesn't seem to make a difference to me. And just like all nymphing then too, you're, you know, you're going to set that indicator at, at a, uh, a spot where you can get your best uh, dead drift, you know, and, and uh, get good mending and uh, you're working, uh, you're working that egg. Um, and here, here's the, here's the other point I want to make about, about this is the, the approach to these salmon. You can't fish them like you would a trout in a, in a river. You can't just, you can't cast directly upstream and, and, uh, and bring it right down through through their face. It's just it doesn't work that way. You know what I like to do is I like to position myself uh, parallel to the fish, a little bit maybe about three feet upstream of, of of the fish of their nose, and then I can work my men so much easier. You know you can position the fly, you can get that fly to where it needs to be, you can control it, you can. Uh, um, throw in these, you know, as many men's as you need to, to slow that fly down and keep it down on the bottom. And then you're going to get some, you're going to get takes. I'll see some, a lot of fishermen that are out there and they're, even the ones that are using indicators, um, they'll, they'll, they'll be, you'll be casting straight upstream and bringing it right through those fish. And, and they're just not able to control the, the fly. They, they can't mend. They're just, they're just strictly re relying on a drift, you know, and when you can mend, you're, you're obviously going to be able to position that fly where it needs to be. So that's the approach I use with, uh, with the eggs. And how about uh, like streamers or any of the flies that you're stripping or swinging, I guess? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So well, I do strip too. So that's why I was kind of making that distinction earlier. And I'm not sure if I was clear enough on that. So what I'll do sometimes is I'll take my, um, my, 
same same deal. Usually a is a ten weight or an eight weight, um, but just with my sink tip, you know. And and um, I'll just attach kind of a a shorter leader section onto that, uh, where I usually don't go over about three feet, and I usually only do a like a double taper on that, maybe like a, a twenty ten or um, fluorocarbon. Uh, but it's pretty short because I do want that to get down there and. You're, now you're just using all your typical fly casts that you would for any species and um, and stripping that fly through, you know, and the browns will chase it, the coho will chase it. You know, it's, it's super fun, just the same way you would strip a fly for, for any other species on, on a river. Um, but the flies themselves are, are pretty small. So I would say most of my uh, migratory flies are, are intruder patterns, and they're usually... Uh, at the most three four inches but you know i'd say most of them are in that uh, two to three inches that's it you know and and uh it's super fun to tie those flies too because uh you can use all different color combos and and uh they look beautiful because you're using a lot of marabou and some and uh they just uh got a really neat look to them but i typically will will, will tie them up in a different variety of uh of colors and and um, materials and uh, just kind of go with the hot hand whatever i think is working that day as far as color goes and um and then you can just strip those through you can let them swing you know kind of however you want with it's just a conventional uh overhand cast and um and just fish it through and the third the third approach would be um spay casting or skagit casting with a one hand single hand or, or two-handed rod and and now in that situation is different because you're not stripping the fly in, you're strictly letting it swing. And uh, here in Wisconsin, most of us that are into two-handed uh, spay casting, we actually use a Skagit head. And so like it, it's, um, it's a shorter head. Our, our rivers aren't super wide like the Pacific Northwest. And, and so uh, it's a more suitable style of fishing with a, with a Skagit rig rather than a uh, Scandi rig. So... Um, but in that situation, we're we're using spay casting techniques, and we're letting that fly just swing through the current, swing from from one spot to another, and and recasting, and and working our way downstream as we go, and and that's super fun because uh, you can cover a lot of ground, and so I think that's really neat, and, and you're you are literally sweeping the river, and so if you get a couple guys out there that are, that are uh, good spay fishermen, you're you're going to cover some ground and get into quite a few fish. It's really super fun, and um, but that's a whole, that's a whole another deal is learning how to spay cast. But I, I I'll tell you, Katie, I just love it. I'm addicted to it. And saltwater fly fishing is one of my favorite things to do, and and I'm not sure what I like best, uh, saltwater or or spay casting. It's just uh, it, it's amazing, and it's just super repetitive and. And the casting is beautiful, and, and then when you hook into one of these huge migratory fish, it's just a it's just a bonus. So yeah, that's that's kind of the 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 ways I approach it, and the, and the different setups. And what's it like once you hook into one? Because I assume these fish, like, are you, you? I mean, you've said that they will often break you off, and you're not landing maybe even the majority of them. But once you get one on the line, what are you in for? Gosh, it, it, it's just an absolute yard sale out there <laughs> it's it's crazy um uh, this uh the the fish okay so it, the chinook it, it depends on on how fresh you get them um with the with the chinook if you get them fresh and you get into like a chrome king just right out of the lake or or maybe one that's been in the river for a week or something they are gonna run you to your backing um there's a section of them and i'm or the uh 
the Milwaukee River that I fish um, up at Clutch Park, and there's a couple bridges. There's a railroad bridge, and, and then there's another road bridge downstream. And the, the, I would say from one spot to another is a, is a like a quarter mile. And I've had kings run me that far. I mean, unbelievable. Where you're you're running, you're you're into your backing, and you're having to like get to the bank and run down the river with these fish because they're taking you that far. They're just so strong and powerful. Because if you apply any kind of pressure, they're going to break you off. And so, learning how to fight big fish is is uh, is something I think a lot of uh, people um, need. They just learn have to learn by experience, you know. So one of the things I always I always tell my my clients is 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 when you catch a big fish, you've got to apply equal pressure. No more, no less. Whatever pressure that fish is giving you, you give equal pressure back. It's it's a super important concept. I learned this years ago, saltwater fishing. You get into a tarpon and you if you can just touch your, your line or touch your reel, you're gonna bust that, that fish off. Well, the same thing's true with these these uh, these king salmon. When they start running, you gotta let them run, and then when they slow down, they start coming at you. You gotta get them on the reel. And uh, usually, on a king that's that's a fresh king, you're gonna be able to get them to run you pretty far, uh, close to your backing, if not in it. And then they'll make usually one big push back towards you, and that's when you are just uh, your reel is screaming because you gotta get that fish back on the reel. But a lot of times, what they'll do is they'll run you to your backing or and and then they just they'll go airborne they'll jump one time and they land on the tippet and breaks you off you know it's kind of kind of their deal you know where our, our steelhead will will run you three or four times i mean they're just they're they're crazy that way uh the browns though they don't give you much of a run they're fun they catch they're big they're they're super cool but they're not gonna they're just gonna hunker down they're gonna they're gonna they're just gonna try to really dig dig hard and, and uh um they won't they won't pull you to your to your backing like a steelhead will or or a king the coho they're they're more like steelhead where they're going to give you two three four different runs uh, before they're going to settle down for you so uh, it's just it's super exciting it's it's hard to describe i mean i know for for when you start talking tarpon fishing those fish can be 150 pounds that's a different deal i mean i've, I've caught 100 100 pound tarpon so i know but Hey, a, a, a 30 pound Chinook salmon in a little river is pretty darn cool too. So, uh, yeah, it, it's super exciting when you get a, and you have to have a, a partner there too, because you just, there's no way you can land that fish and by yourself or, or try to get it in a net by yourself. You got to have somebody who's available to, to net that fish for you. And I mean, I've gotten a few into my hand, but most of the time when I try that, I'm going to, I end up breaking them off. So it's, it's super cool. It's kind of crazy that for the salmon, you know, for a fish that's about to die, that they've got so much uh, spunk left in them, I guess, to, to pull you out that far. You would, I just feel like you'd expect a fish that's about to croak to not be very energetic. Yeah, well, when they, when they start to, when they're post-spawn, then they do slow down a lot more. You know, when I'm talking about these fish that are giving us these, these, bigs, these big runs, those are the pre-spawn uh, salmon. You know, they're fresh. Um, they're, they still are really aggravated. They're agitated. They're, they're, they're fighting for position, you know, and that type of thing. And, and those are the ones that will give you, a, give you a run. Now, when you start getting into the, the post-spawn fish and, and they're... Um, you know, they're starting to die, they're decaying, they're zombies, you know, those fish, I don't even try to catch them. You know, it's like, 
you'll get a little bit of a tug for, from them and they'll, they'll, they'll run you sometimes, but not like a fresh fish, you know, it's, that's what's super exciting. But I mean, even, even a, even a, a post-spawn salmon will still, they're, they're gonna still give you a good run, but it, it's, uh, it's nothing like a fresh fish. Well, George, just to wrap up, is there anything that um, you think we should have covered that I didn't ask about? Like anything, you know, if someone came to fish for salmon in the Great Lakes that you think might surprise them if, if we didn't cover it here? No, I think I think we really touched on everything. It, it's super fun to talk about these fish because they're just it's, they're majestic and they're so beautiful. And and, and uh, I would say the only thing is that you just got to make sure you have the right conditions. Uh, we didn't talk too much about this yet, but southern wisconsin we're in a three-year drought right now and and this last third year this last summer was was the toughest uh we had two periods of about 14 weeks of no no rain and then when we got to september typically when the kings would start running there was no fish and um we had no water we had no fish it was hot so basically none of the conditions were present for for typical salmon run. So I would say if somebody wants to come out and fish for Great Lakes salmon, you just got to make sure you check your conditions, water levels, water temperature, and um, and make sure there's fish in the systems because if they're not there, they're not there. It's just that simple. You're not going to go out there and and uh, and uh, just, you know, find them because you, you'll know when they're there because they're, they're there by the hundreds or, or even the thousands. So it's super exciting. Great. Well, um, remind people where they can find you if they wanted to book a trip with you or shoot you an email or just, you know, find you on the web. Where can they do that? Yeah, thanks, Katie. I appreciate it. So, um, yeah, so my business, my guide business is in the flow fly fishing. And I'm in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, which is a uh, vacation town kind of between Milwaukee and Chicago, but about an hour from both. So, you know, either, either kind of Northeast or Southeast. And, um, and I fish from the Driftless area and in Western Wisconsin for trout to, uh, my, my specialty summer trips are, are smallmouth bass, pike and muskie, uh, float trips. And then in the fall, that's when I get to the migratory fish. Um, and then the spring will start off with uh, uh, steelhead in, in March and in April. Um, but on social media, you can uh, find me on Instagram and Facebook at In the Flow Fly Fishing or my personal accounts. Just look up George Cater and uh, yeah, reach out to me and, and if you just have any questions or, or want to talk fly fishing or just say hi and are interested in booking a trip. Um, you know, we can get that done as well. So. Um, but yeah, thanks so much for having me again, Katie. I really appreciate it. It's, it's so fun to talk about fly fishing and uh, especially someone like you who's, who's super excited about it as well and, and share that same passion. Well, I appreciate it. You've got a standing invitation to come on anytime you want and just talk about fishing. So <laughs> just let me know yeah, if, if awesome. any other species pop into your mind that you just uh, you know feel like rattling off about for a while. I am uh, happy to hear all the different things you've got to chase over there and all the different ways that we can we can do that. Yeah, sounds good, Katie. Thanks again. I really appreciate it. All right, that's a wrap. Uh, thank you all for listening. If you want to find all the other episodes as well as show notes, you can find those on fishuntamed.com. Um, you'll also find a contact link there if you want to reach out to me. And you can also find me on Instagram at fishuntamed. Uh, if you want to support the show, you can give it a follow on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app. And if you'd like to leave a review, it would be greatly appreciated. 
Uh, But otherwise, thank you all again for listening. I'll be back here in two weeks with another episode. Take care, everybody. Spend your Saturdays with life on the water. Join Captain Brandon Simmons for fishing, diving, travel, and so much more. You want to succeed. You want to fish. You want to be one of the greatest. Oh, look at that thing, dude. (laughs) Let's see what kind of trouble we can get into today. Don't miss life on the water. Every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. (laughs) The destination for outdoor entertainment. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.